0: Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, my guest is David Weston. Uh, he is a group manager over at Microsoft uh, doing uh, Windows security. Uh, he runs two teams over there, uh, the Windows uh, Microsoft device security for Core OS, And he also manages the offensive security research team, which is kind of like a red team at Microsoft doing um, uh, simulated hacking attacks against the products. Did I get that right? Yep, that's correct. Uh, David, how did you get into security? I always, I'm always, i always interested and fascinated by people's um, kind of path into yeah, the security that- industry. When you were in high school, heading into college with all these fantastic dreams, what were those dreams?
1: Yeah, so mine's pretty simple. I watched war games when I was about six years old. Um, I'm kind of old. So I was back in the 80s. Um, I actually had access through my dad to to things like uh, Vax mainframes and and early Sun OS, So I saw war games and, and basically by five, six years old, I knew I wanted to do computer security. That was it. Really? Yeah, um, which is pretty unusual, I think, for people that were in that era, right? This is 20, 30 years before uh, really security became mainstream, but very early. And, you know, I started um, on Usenet, um watching people post exploits trying to understand that kind of stuff you know reading lf one's early stack overflow kind of papers um you know things like that so yeah i've been been an avid reader of FRAC 2600 anything i could get my hands on in those early days um I, so i learned a lot through Were you always were you always a math
0: uh, smart kid um inclined towards math uh in grade school
1: early days no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say inclined towards math. I would say I, I had a lot more creative interests, skateboarding stuff like that. I obviously, I did uh, well at school, but I wouldn't say I was like a uh, an indoor kind of person just doing math. Um, but security itself, for me, is a very creative process. So I always found it fascinating in that sense, and and it it really um, multi dimensionally uh, is a very interesting profession.
0: How did you get your start? Um, career-wise, professionally?
1: Um, You know, I uh, came out of school, um, uh, did kind of the, I would say, the standard, found a a systems engineering kind of position um, in a a government contractor. And, you know, I, I would say in most companies in those days, if you gravitated towards security, people were happy to let you work on it because it was not the type of position that a lot of people would look at and say, there's Tons of career growth, you know, in those early... Right, years. or job security. I had the same experience as a
0: journalist. Uh, security was kind of dumped on me because I was the newest, youngest uh, rookie on the team and yeah, no one wanted to do it. And, and you know, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'm hearing these stories a lot uh, from folks as well. Uh, and, and you, how did you start out?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I would say, you know, at working at any tech company in those days, and this was a, a military contractor kind of organization... You know, jumping head first into incident response and things that were not necessarily a specialty in those days. Things weren't quite as mature. Um, you know, I, I became pretty quickly recognized as the security person at, at that company, uh, and then I started to jump around to various uh, other companies in in that realm. Uh, and pretty soon, I was doing what I would say is the 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 standard role of a security person in that early to mid two thousands, which was professional red teaming and pen testing, code reviews, exploit development, those kinds of things. Sort of a jack of all trades, because I don't think security as a field was wide enough to have really specific specialties at that point, maybe in some places, but not as it is today. Uh, And so I I did a lot of that kind of work. Um, And I found it fascinating. I learned just a ton. I, I probably tap into that experience doing, you know, pen testing at your average a uh, middle to large corporation every day, the experience of you know the perception of the the average person at a company on the the priority of security, you know what the average person you know cares about in terms of security. I, I tap into those kind of social aspects a lot. When did you get to Microsoft? I came in two thousand and eight. Uh, ironically, I'd done some black hat uh, research on OSX um, at that time or as my friend Alex Ionescu likes to say. Oh, and wait, wait,
0: let's back up a second. When you say you did some Black Hat research into the OSX, yeah. you mean you did some
1: uh, research security
0: research into yeah. OSX that ended up at the Black Hat conference? That's right. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah. so let me clarify a little bit. Not Black Hat research, but I did some research at a Black Hat uh, conference, uh, and there I met some folks uh, from Microsoft. Yeah, they used to be
0: doing heavy recruiting at uh, the old Steptoe and that crew, RIP Steptoe. Um, when you got into Microsoft in two thousand and eight, this is post-warm era, post Microsoft's uh, struggle with you know security perception and so on. What was that like um, coming f- uh, for someone like you coming from the outside, getting into Microsoft at a time when uh, in oh eight? Let me see if I remember in 08 things might have already been have have improved to the point they have, they had you know, uh, a, a very active uh, public uh, appearances at security conferences and so on. But, you know, from your experience, what was it like from someone like you coming from the outside, from the hacker community, coming from this uh, 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 era where Microsoft may not have had the best posture in security and we were having problems with uh, 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 worm attacks, research, uh, relationships with researchers. Talk to me a little bit about that transition for you.
1: I think for me, I had a little different perspective. Um, I, I actually saw Microsoft just, re- they were just releasing the previews or just released Vista around that time. And I remember being fascinated that Vista supported ASLR and DEP, which at the time were limited to things like GRSec and OpenBSD, these really kind of core security uh, distributions. And so, so to see that in the most mainstream operating system on the planet actually convinced me that it was a very progressive organization that was probably different than most people's perception. But frankly, the opportunity to work on that OS, having done so much kind of externally and at a time when I thought they were on fire in terms of pushing the, the, the standard kind of desktop and server operating system forward, I actually saw them as having as being pretty progressive. Uh, and then when I got there, um, I just saw that more. I mean, they were looking at things like, how do we take our fuzzing scale to the next level? How do we do broad static analysis to find vulnerabilities um, just about every superstar rock star security researcher that I could think of was kind of there on contract looking at code so for me I, I don't think I ever had this perception that uh, they were sort of behind the curve you know Microsoft when I got there looked like the place to be in terms of security uh, and a lot of that is because um, internally we uh, I don't think we were necessarily showing everything that was happening we're not as necessarily as transparent or as mature as we are now in terms of exposing to the world and our specifically our customers what we're doing but internally uh, you know I, I couldn't have been more excited and frankly just intimidated by the level of skills uh, and experience that were inside the company at that time it was really an exciting place to be.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Vista because I, I was going through my preparation for this interview, uh, you know, as it relates to your red teaming and your offensive security research thing. And I remember writing a story, it might have been right around then, because it was the Black Hat when Vista was the dominating conversation at Black Hat. And writing a story about Microsoft working with LSD, the Polish guys, Ioactive, Matasano, they had kind of commandeered the entire pen test industry or, or, or security assessment industry. Uh, to work on Vista, and they made a big public uh, push around that. Uh, so, you know, the notion of uh, red teaming the operating system or, 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 you know, throwing eyeballs at bug classes and so on is not necessarily new. What is uh, new? Uh, uh, what exactly does your team do, do, you know, on a regular basis and talk about, you know, the priorities uh, for this uh, red teaming offensive security research operation?
1: Yeah, so I I think the first thing I'll say is this concept of red teaming is a little bit overloaded in the sense that it can mean anything from, you know, I'm doing a network. Well, let's
0: define it. Before we get into it, let's define it. Because red team in the traditional sense is a company hires uh, uh, an outside hacking group. They set what they call trophies. I want you to get into the CEO's email. I want you to take uh, control of this mail server. I want you to have... X, I want you guys to attempt to have these trophies. And at the end of the engagement, you kind of produce a report saying, I was able to do this, this is how I did it. Uh, It's kind of a a traditional simulated uh, hacking attack. From your perspective, is that a clean definition? And how do you define what you were doing as it relates to the concept of red teaming?
1: Yeah, I think that's a clean definition. I would add that for me, the key ingredient of red teaming is the adversarial mindset that you're simulating an adversary, which is you are uh, expressing intent or you're building and deploying attacks um, to achieve an objective, which might be simulating access to data. Um, In the case of the client side, it could be getting elevation of privilege on the device. But I think that component of saying, I have an objective to achieve and I'm going to document the methods and means I did that, and particularly any data that could be useful in defense is critical. I do think it's overloaded to cover things like vulner- general scalable vulnerability discovery and things that would be traditionally assigned to the secure development um, lifecycle, um, and that's where I think it gets a bit muddied. So to be clear, you know Microsoft has invested heavily in securing products uh, really for a very long time now, um, and so the red team, I think, and, and what my team brings, that's. Uh, a little more uh new or innovative is the adversarial mindset to vulnerability discovery and exploit development that is a component that wasn't necessarily pervasive in the strategy previously
0: that's really interesting um you also have a significant advantage in that the the telemetry data that you have is just oh god it might i might describe it as overwhelming in terms of uh, what you're getting out of Defender uh, on the consumer side, Defender AP, ATP on the uh, on the enterprise side, uh, all the telemetry from uh, your cloud deployments, Azure, I'm guessing uh, that plays into what you're mining and looking at. Um, uh, uh, talk to me about that part of it. What like some of the real advantages that you have that you can actually uh, 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 you know, predict certain avenues and paths for exploitation and how you can use that telemetry and all that mountains of data to really uh, drill down and guide your team?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I would say certainly uh, Microsoft describes the overall kind of threat optics as what we call the intelligent security graph, which is, you know, we've got um, numerous avenues for threat intelligence. Uh, Like you mentioned, we've got the... uh, Defender antivirus, we've got some enterprise products, uh, and then we've got services that by nature might collect, you know, spam or other malicious material. And we can combine that um, uh, into and synthesize intelligence on where attackers are going, both through manual uh, threat intelligence and human analysis, all the way to um, statistical models, machine learning, AI. So that certainly helps us to understand, I would say at scale, Uh, where attackers might be going and apply some game theory and understanding to that. I couldn't overstate, though, that I think the vast majority of the quality intelligence when it comes to attacks is actually coming through relationship building.
0: So the fact that like Like partnerships to threat intel guys, uh, uh, social media tracking,
1: certainly there, but you know, the fact that we are the hub of a lot of of security in general, right? There is rarely whether it's a cloud service or a client device that for a given campaign, it doesn't touch a Microsoft product. And because of that, we often uh, are assisting other defenders, enterprises across the industry, um, other technology companies and either analyzing that intelligence or providing technical support or or vice versa. And so I would say there is certainly um, a lot of intelligence and information that helps us protect people that comes through the large scale cloud uh, visibility. But for me personally, being able to ring someone up at Adobe and discuss an attack or ring someone up at Google and discuss an attack, really focus across company lines on what can we do to protect our mutual customers and the internet at large is actually the place where I think we get some of the the best value. Uh, And even beyond that, I should call out our relationship with the security researchers and finders and people who participate in contests like pwn to own and their willingness to be open and transparent with a goal towards helping us protect people cannot be overstated. And I would say um, a lot of what I do is simply listening to those smart people and then focusing on my role to put it into action. Isn't it interesting
0: and fascinating to you how the concept of pwn to own has evolved over the years uh, from the very, very first one to today? And and and. I want to get into this a little bit later with like the, you know, where is Windows going from a security perspective. But it's really interesting to me. I covered the very first to 1 when Dino um, uh, uh, did his MacBook hijack all the way through Charlie Miller and all those fun days in Vancouver. And, you know, in the very, very early days, I remember how much Microsoft frowned on the whole concept of bug bounties or these kind of to 1 contests. It's really uh, interesting to look at. The evolution of Microsoft specifically, and the industry as a whole, towards this acceptance of offensive guys pounding at your stuff, and 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 the the mindset that you know what this is for the greater good, this is for uh, you know this pushes security forward, and I think that's you know something Microsoft uh, should hold their heads high. What has been your experience? And you know, it segs into my earlier question about someone coming from the outside to the inside. Did you have any sort of uh, perspective or perception? Uh, issues around, you know, how your work might be viewed uh, at a company. At the time, in 2008, when you joined at the time, it, it, you know, it had already changed dramatically. But
1: yeah. Was- yeah, I would say there was there is a definitely visible evolution in Microsoft in the 10 years or so I've been here. When I first came here, I think we were really focused on scaling out security efforts and integrating it deeply into the engineering process. And I'll explain what I meant by that. We very methodically, you know, when we started, say, the design of Windows 7, uh, when people are sort of writing their design specifications for the features we're going to produce, you know, we'd be deeply engaged in what I would call the very traditional threat modeling, where we're doing diagrams and having deep discussions on how to improve the design. Uh, And then we went in sort of a waterfall model to, you know, writing tests and fuzzers and running those on as many machines we could at the time, you know, these large-scale fuzzing labs. Um, doing things with static analysis, et cetera. And I think our mentality at the time was if we focus enough, we can find all of the vulnerabilities uh, before we ship the product. Uh, and while I, I definitely think uh, we've got to continue to do that process, I think what we learned over time is that's not sufficient. You, could, you can get an A plus on your security reviews. You could sp- spare no expense and no resource and having the best people look at your code the best tools, the largest fuzzing lab, but it only takes one, two, three, four bugs for you to miss, which is an inevitability, I think statistically, to have the opportunity for real world attackers to exploit your platform and impact customers. So I think if there was one thing I think we learned over time is the idea that we are going to pro, be able to simply proactively secure all of our code before it reaches customers, it, it, You know, I, I think that idea um, is that that's no longer sufficient. And so what we did over time is we started to bring in things like you mentioned, telemetry and threat intelligence to to help us understand how our platform's actually being intact in the wild after we've attempted to secure it. And that channel, what happens after we ship the product uh, and the security we do after we ship the product has become really critical. Uh, And so the evolution I've seen is uh, basically complementing the proactive security efforts with... Uh, bounty programs and outside influence. Uh, But most importantly for me, and I think where where it comes into play is, designing the platform to be, assume that someone will find a bug, assume that someone will attempt to exploit it, and start our defensive thinking and our designs from there. So assume you have a, a, a code execution vulnerability. What can we do there? Can we stop you from using techniques that would allow you to get arbitrary code execution? If you get arbitrary code execution, can we invest enough in containment, isolation, and sandboxing to make that less useful, of less utility to this attacker? If you escape the sandbox, what can we do in the operating system with things like virtualization based security to actually secure the assets and the, the ultimate goal of the attacker uh, and make that more difficult? And I think that's where red teaming comes in, along with that external influence and threat intelligence, is to figure out what happens after the bug and, and what can we do to secure it.
0: And the idea is to do this proactively, so do shipping these hardening um, uh, mitigations, uh, uh, you know, along the way, and not just as a responsive nature to something coming into the MSRC or through one of these te- telemetry uh, portions. That's, uh, as I understand it, that's the, the the big win and the goal for you is to ship, uh, to be able to ship mitigations proactively, exactly, having looked at everything else.
1: Absolutely, I think about five years ago. We were really, really focused, and this was even new at the time, on taking all of the data sets externally, coming through telemetry, coming through partner reports, and categorizing them. I always call this like the zoology of exploitation. So, you know, I might connect with friends at Adobe, and we might categorize for the last you know, 20 zero days, what was the technique used? Did they target the length field in the vector array? Uh, What could we do about disrupting that technique if it's ubiquitous across the board? And if we disrupt this technique by putting in a mitigation, what will be the impact to the attackers? Will they have to rewrite their frameworks? What will that that cost be? So a lot of what we were doing was this zoology of very pedantically categorizing everything about the kind of corpus of exploits in the wild. What are the favored bug classes? Is it use after free or is it, you know, heap corruption? Mm -hmm. What is the techniques involved? Is it most often ROP or are they going for read-write? Um, How is ASLR impacting this, et cetera, et cetera? And we would use that to say, hey, if we did this mitigation, it would break about 80 to 90% of the exploits out there, for example. And that's what we would focus on. But as you pointed out, using that approach, although it's incredibly valuable on its own, is not very proactive. It doesn't stop the attack one, right? It it simply uh, stops future attacks. And I think ultimately our customers expect more out of us. And that's why we've evolved the strategy to include proactive measures as well.
0: And I imagine there's a big uh, SDL component to what you do as well, which is this feedback loop to the developers to uh, get their education up uh, in this, this loop of uh, communication. I mean, that's what the, as the SDL was positioned back in the day. That was the idea uh, that security uh, lessons kind of fed information back to developers uh, for future products or whatever it is.
1: Absolutely. I think uh, I would say that there's two components to the strategy that is limit the number of bugs and bug classes that are even available to attackers and that's where we provide fuzzing, static analysis tools and broad spread uh broad spectrum education to developers at microsoft to really stop the opportunity for attacks and obviously that's that's a huge component and then there's the assuming those vulnerabilities are going to exist that's where this assumed breach or real world sort of mentality comes in what can we do to harden the platform so that those bugs are less impactful and hopefully not exploited at all? And I think in the data sets we've shared at recent conferences, you can see the actual number of bugs being fixed and reported to Microsoft is actually going up. Yeah, The le-
0: CV numbers are climbing, but uh, exploitation of those bugs within the 30 day window that we've talked about uh, that, we, that the industry kind of measures things against is declining. I mean, the, those, right. the, the raw data shows that.
1: I think most people who've done exploitation, who said you know they could write exploits in a weekend, ten or fifteen years ago, would be hard pressed to tell you how difficult it would be to write an exploit now. And and that's-
0: we'll get into that in a second because I want to talk about these exploit chains and how it's changed the landscapes uh, uh, tremendously. But I, but but before we go to get to that, can you give me a sense of you mentioned joining Microsoft around the time uh, uh, ASLR and DEP was introduced to the platform? Can you talk about what 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 would you say... Uh, have been your team's biggest trophies? What specifically uh, has this offensive security research, red teaming, uh, uh, contributed to the operating system? And you know, you mentioned you 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 you're also managing the device security for uh, a core operating system team. Yep. Uh, specifically, what have you guys added or contributed from a mitigation standpoint uh, that we that we that we benefit from today in Windows 10, Windows 7?
1: Sure, I would say things like um, in the Microsoft Edge browser, the move to blocking um, JIT or just-in-time compilation from the content process has been critical. We realize that ultimately what attackers are trying to do is get a blob of code running in that content process. And by moving the JIT process into a separate broker, we've been able to essentially cut off the core content process in Edge that touches remote code. uh, we completely blocked it off. And a lot of that came out of an analysis of what uh, our Red Team was doing to the Edge browser and our internal exploitation uh, efforts. So uh, more I'll or do- less
0: done away with JIT spraying on, on
1: on Edge. Yeah, we really forced you to go either pure ROP or do data corruption. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, on top of that, there's been numerous strengthening of the sandbox that just hasn't come from Red Team, but also from external input, which has cut off the attack surface from... Uh, components like Win32K or the kernel attack surface, um, sort of approximating the approach used by other browsers like Chrome to really knock off that surface. Things like Application Guard, which actually puts the entire application in a you know, Hyper-V style um, virtual container. That's been in response to the red team, um, basically finding techniques in most cases to, to escape the sandbox and the kernel. Um, Uh, we had a a fairly notorious feature which is actually a point of pride for me which is uh, we developed a feature that we called return flow guard which was a complement for protecting the stack Mm
0: -hmm. a complement
1: to control flow guard Um, uh, and we actually put that out in insider previews and lots of people from the external community gave us feedback and positive feedback on the impact of that but the red team actually worked with other folks to design that internally We actually fully uh, implemented it and we're pretty close to shipping it. And then we took it out. Why did we take it out? Well, Red Team was continuously attacking uh, uh, this feature and actually eventually found what I would characterize as a design flaw. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say that, you know, in a more immature environment, folks would have said, let's just ship it anyways. We'll deal with it in
0: in an update down the road.
1: That's right. We'll fix it maybe at some point in the future. And I think what we have been able to do is mature through our processes. We could see through essentially game theory and development here, like we're never going to be able to cl- close this off completely. So let's not drive the performance uh, cost up of the, of the platform. Let's not spend the resources that are required to maintain this thing. Let's just take it out. And to me, the fact that we introduced something and then we're not hesitant about saying we broke it and we're now taking it out before it ever was touched by an external person is, the best demonstration I can say of our capabilities at this
0: point. And maturity. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's not easy to make those decisions. I imagine it, you know, I imagine mm-hmm. the people who built it or were proud of it were, um, can't be entirely happy, but the level of maturity at an organization that Microsoft affords that allows you to say, you know what, it doesn't, it's not worth the risk. That's
1: right. That's so
0: now right. based on all of this, we, we are moving towards uh, security research uh, and, um, Attacker activity aimed at defeating these mitigations. That's the next step. Just jumping over these boundaries, uh, yeah. whether you can get out of a sandbox or defeat control flow guard or whatever it is. That's where we're heading next. Where uh, you know I mentioned earlier, going to the force spawn two one and watching uh, Charlie and Dino uh, hacking to MacBooks uh, at a time when they were you know there was no code signing, no sandbox. It was a straight right to exploit. Uh, get a reliable exploit working, and it's game over. Today, you go to pawn to one, and the Chinese guys have to chain four and five uh, vulnerabilities together and do a, all kinds of magic uh, to get a reliable exploit. That's what the landscape looks like today. However, there isn't a day I can uh, I can open a security news site and not see a breach or some sort of compromise or someone else getting owned how do you help me help me understand as a, as a dumb outsider help me understand how things are so much harder to exploit and it's it's documented and, and the data shows that but at the same time people are getting popped daily
1: I think there's it's there are obviously uh, there are multiple vectors to achieve an objective and I think that's where full spectrum red teaming really provides the value it is absolutely true that finding a memory corruption exploit at this point is incredibly costly and it it almost requires a team of people and funding for months to even be able to put up a good showing at Pondone. There's definitely exceptions to that. Richard Zhu and Loki are, uh, kind of come to mind. But oh, the the Chinese case,
0: guys are unbelievable. Like all those yeah, guys out yeah. of the Tencent group.
1: Um, I, I think, you know, certainly there, I, what I would call there's this, this sort of apex APT groups that are continuing to use these really high-level, almost fantasy-style memory corruption exploits. Really, that that to me that's a demonstration of this concept of overmatch, which is if you develop something that's you know five or ten years ahead of what everyone else is doing, the chances that you'll be caught or stopped are very low. It's very similar to what you would do in sort of uh, military weapons development. You develop a thing that's going to continue, that will work twenty years from now, not just a thing that will work tomorrow. However, that doesn't mean there aren't many uh, cheaper techniques for uh, penetrating a network, and I think when you look at the root cause of most of these breaches, um, things really come from, you know, a couple-year-old unpatched exploit, macros, socially engineered executables, or JavaScript or VBScript. And I think, frankly, a lot of that is because um, the, the folks that are being attacked um, are still in the process of raising their security levels. They're going through this transformational process of maybe moving to, like, deploying application control solutions or platforms that have those kinds of protections built in. And attackers are really, um, are really uh, uh, a building off of that. So um, that's a, a, a nice way of saying that we really have to focus on both. We wanna stop these Apex attackers a- and break their you know, 20 years into the future exploit. But we also want to do what I would call more bread and butter things, which is raise the level and cost for doing very simple attacks like the, the macros uh, or socially engineered binaries, et cetera. it might still
0: work. Because I, I just read the most recent nation state high-end attack uh, report. You know what it was? It was a phishing attack with a Word document that sure. required someone to click on a macro.
1: That's right. It still works. Absolutely.
0: Uh, and you chalk that up to just user education issue or are there are there security tool i think uh, let's let's think about it from a defender's perspective we're never going to educate our users not to click on dumb shit because they all do we all do people click on videos and they want to see britney Spears naked or whatever it is uh from a defender's perspective how do you defend against just those very basic things that doesn't require a lot of chaining and exploitation and
1: for me, it's really twofold. One is giving the the enterprises tools for uh, balancing the business trade tradeoffs uh, with the security impact. For example, um, there you know macros in Word documents is really a critical part of many many businesses in the Fortune 500 out there. I've seen you know oil platforms develop on macros, and the reason you know things like Microsoft Office are popular is they're incredibly useful for productivity. So, um, you know, I, I hear sort of naive suggestions like just kill macros. The reality is it's not we, it's not really. That's ideal. Right. Right. So enterprises would like to get the security, but they can't simply stop doing what they do that makes them productive. And so a lot of times it's about providing the tools and more importantly, the information and in the telemetry. So the enterprise can balance deploying policies that would constrain macros, whether that's using isolation like a hypervisor to contain office or restricting macros from the internet or any, any uh, number of options, uh, but really giving them the tools to see the risks and, and transform over time. Uh, I think that is critical. Uh, and unfortunately, that is just not simple. That's not an overnight thing, but there's rarely uh, you know, an enterprise I talk to who isn't you know, considering that. And for folks who, who are ready to take transformation today, there are devices like 10S that are protected from macros out of the box. Um, So the tools
0: are available, I mean, the tools and the methodologies are available for for dealing with
1: uh, an environment where you have to have macros enabled. Absolutely, but I I think there's also a risk of over focusing on these simple techniques because they, you know, we see them, you know, the reality is we saw what about a year and a half ago to two years ago, um, full remote code execution exploits into the kernel um, from SMB, which a lot of people thought were fantasy, right? They thought remote code execution exploits over the network were dead. In reality, they're out there lurking, uh, and that's why teams like uh, Offensive Security Research, the folks who are participating in pwn to own and the, the other folks out there really doing that cutting-edge security are, are incredibly valuable because even if these aren't mainstream attacks, they exist, they are a concern, and there's a trickle-down effect, which is how many people went and picked up you know, Eternal Blue and turned it into a widespread attack? If Eternal Blue doesn't exist because it's way too expensive or difficult to pull off, uh, we also limit the trickle down effect.
0: David, I talk to CISOs all the time about this stuff. I, you know, I spend a lot of time with defenders in the trenches, and you know what they say to me? Like all these high-end uh, 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 anti-exploit mitigations and all this really cutting-edge research that you see at uh, at, at Black Hat or CanSec. You know, I, I really don't care about that. I care about how do I stop phishing in the enterprise. I care about how is, how are my cloud deployments. Uh, properly configured Uh, you know I am spending majority of my resources blocking and tackling on the basics that I you know I can't be bothered with that stuff help me feel better are we getting better as an industry operating systems are hardened even your iPhone is you know is a solid solid from a security perspective but I just get the sense that defenders can't expect to win anymore or or even get ahead of things help me feel better that as an industry over all these years of all this work and all this money spent that we've gotten better, um, you know, in the midst of all this breach news and there isn't a day that someone isn't popped.
1: Yeah, certainly. I, I think um, a couple of things I'll say there is I, I understand the the CISO, uh, CIO perspective, which is I've got this incredibly diverse environment that I've got to secure uh, and I got to keep business running and it's really hard to thread the needle. And so there's a tendency to say, let me just focus on the low hanging fruit first. But, you know, I generally give the advice that you have to look at a balanced environment. So let's take, for example, what I would say is a very mainstream concern. There wasn't a CISO I talked to who didn't say, I'm really concerned about WannaCry and its impact. Uh, and if we look at that, there was a few kind of components involved. One is, you know, basic hygiene of patching is actually incredibly difficult. Hard, hard, hard. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a hard problem for CISOs to solve. But there's also if you were not if you were running Win 10, even Win 8, you know things some of the mitigations in there like HAL randomization, HAL protection in the kernel, um, uh, at control fl- kernel control flow guard, and, and the the really the latest technology. Even if you hadn't patched it for the particular instances we saw, those exploits wouldn't have worked, right? So. Um, it, it's, it's important to see the linkage there, I think, be, between the advanced protection that you get in the latest operating systems that's really driven by research teams like OSR and some of the other folks externally uh, and, the, and the, the general defensive nature of the device. If you're just focusing on low-level attacks, um, I think the reality, or sorry, the lower-hanging fruit, I think the reality is there's always a trickle-down effect, and what is advanced you know, on Tuesday might be commodity by Friday. And so you've really got to have this full spectrum balanced approach to security, which involves doing the basics and focusing on that, but also transformational, moving to new operating systems that have the right protection, buying hardware that's going to allow you to take advantage of that protection. You really got to look at both. And then, of course, there's a lot of exciting, I think, work going on with transformations in network design, going from the traditional kind of perimeter defense to, to zero trust. I think all of those are things that CIOs, CSOs need to look at uh, as part of a balanced approach to defense.
0: What's the metric you use? What's the data point you use to uh, guide your your resources as it relates to Windows is getting better? Is it that CVE count high, exploitation low number? What, what is what is a metric that that
1: you and your team use to say
0: we are getting there?
1: So. One of the things that I created the team for was actually to have concrete metrics. So the first thing I would do in the past before we had the offensive security research team is I would sit down with some of the teams at pwn to own and I would say, how long did this take you? That would be the first question out of my mouth. And they would kind of think, well, you know, X number of days to find the bug, X number of days to bypass this technique, X number of days to escape the sandbox. And I would write that number down. And I I would say to myself, next year when I come back, even if I don't fully stop them with that number to be higher, that number to be higher. Right. And what the OSR team did and why I went and spent time recruiting folks and building this team is I wanted to be able to produce that number and validate it regularly on all of our critical infrastructure and feature sets. And so that to me is the most telling number, which is if I do a red team operation and I get a number. And then we go back and build a bunch of stuff. You know, look back at the attack surface, reduce it, introduce you know all sorts of things. And that number isn't higher the second time they try, or they're not defeated. But you what's know,
0: what's the data point that's driving that number? It just can't be anecdotal conversations at, at CanSec.
1: No, no. So now with the the OSR folks, you know, I, I make them do sort of a time and data entry, right? So they'll tell me very specifically. It was this number of days to get the info leak bug. It was this number of days to do this. I had this problem. So I get very detailed metrics and it's part of our out brief process to talk specifically about what were the cost driving points of the exploit chain. And obviously that is an anecdotal number but it's the best we have to generalize to what the cost to attackers would be. But for a critical security feature like the hypervisor that number needs to be astronomical Or we've got, you know, challenges securing uh, critical assets.
0: And that number, uh, I know your colleague John Lambert did a talk recently, which was focused heavily on this, you know, not just raising the bar, but raising the cost for attackers, expanding time to... uh, expanding the, the uh, just, just the overall cost to the attacker. Just when you look at, at things over, let's say, the last five years, has that number gotten higher? Are you comfortable with where that number is? Are you
1: comfortable with where your metric is? Can it get better uh, significantly? So I think the truth is that number oscillates. And the reason it oscillates is defense gets better, better, better to a point, and then offense has a breakthrough, and that number drops. And then defense really focuses on what was the technique that led them to a breakthrough, and that number tr- starts to go up again. And then there's a breakthrough. And so the reality is that kind of baseline ambient number needs to go high, but we're constantly in a state of peaks and valleys. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is uh, is based on uh, defense needing to invest more in in breakthroughs. I don't think, I think defense is too often being led by the latest breach or the latest technique. And so we are waiting for that number to get to a critical point before the right business resources come through to focus. And then we make progress and we let up off the gas and we go back into kind of a, a Valley. And so I think one of the best things we can do is, is say we've got to keep this up and raise the ambient levels. Uh, And I would say another objective metric that demonstrates to your, to your, to your question That I think we are going up is, you know, the cost of an exploit is rising astronomically. I've seen just recently from uh, firms like Zerodium and others, I mean, we're at a couple million dollars for an iPhone exploit. Now, some of that's driven by increased demand because there are more folks who are looking to do cyber operations who are willing to pay for that. But a lot of it has to do with just the resources that are required. And so looking at those numbers goes up, gives me a you know an aggregate confidence that as defenders at least in the memory corruption space we're really we're really we're really driving the cost up and as a artifact of that we are limiting the number of folks who actually have this capability
0: can i tell you what the metric i use sure the metric i use from an outsider kind of from a journalism perspective as a, as a as a someone who's just watching on is have you noticed that all the stunt hacks and all the, the major news stories around offensive security research is now moving like, towards embedded devices and cars and, and sure. IoT, and we, we're no longer seeing any of these on modern operating systems? Uh, why, where did these 24-year-olds go that you used to show up at uh, NILS who used to show up at West and just pop everything, hit all three bouncers in one day and leave? Like They haven't disappeared uh, it's obvious that it's gotten so much harder with all these investments, for, you know, Chrome going to sandbox, even in like the sandbox tab model where you, re- you really need a bunch of additional exploits to break out of sandboxes. Just anecdotally looking at where offensive stunt kind of big, big high headline research is going is away from the modern operating system and, and onto IoT. So I think that's, a, you know, a testament to all the work that's been done.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it's, it's a lot of those the, uh, category of devices are simpler, but the context is still interesting, right? Hacking something without the latest mitigations and unpatch, but that's running critical infrastructure is always, I think, going to raise eyebrows and concerns and, and, and draw some attention as it should.
0: Where is Windows going from a security perspective? Uh, and I know code signing is coming. You're going to tie everything to a Windows store. Obviously, it's going to change the landscape for, for attackers. Uh, where do you see uh, attackers targeting Microsoft moving forward? If, if, this, trends hold, if this trend holds and, and you've, you, you, know, you continue to uh, incrementally raise this bar and raise this cost.
1: So I think the hypervisor is the new sandbox. Um, attackers are going lower and lower into the operating system stack, into device and firmware, because that's the place defenders are not. Um, you know, I often have this debate internally and externally, which is, is firmware really a problem? And my answer is, how would you know? You have no optics or visibility there. And so for me, uh, I gave a talk, I think earlier this year at Blue Hat Israel, where I outlined our strategy for really down to the root of trust in the hardware for enhancing and bringing mitigations to that level. For me, that's a place that keeps me up at night, but it's also incredibly exciting. And we've got a ton of stuff lined up there from an improvement standpoint.
0: All right, David, I got maybe if you have a few minutes, I just got some quick fire questions just to wrap up. Are you comfortable putting your mom or your aunt or your grandma on the internet to do Everyday banking, facebooking, whatever, the, whatever, moms and dads, the av- every, the average end user, with Windows 10 out of the box, uh, without third-party security tools, are you comfortable? Uh,
1: uh, I would that? say on 10s would be the best example of that. On 10s, absolutely, that is in fact what I give my parents and family uh,
0: in default state. So you they, they don't have to do anything special to set it up.
1: Yep. If I go buy a Surface laptop out of the store right now, it's running 10S, it's got code integrity, it's restricting app distribution from the store, and it's got all the latest mitigations turned on by default. I'm very comfortable with that.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Do you believe that third-party AV antivirus software introduces more risk than it protects?
1: I think that's a tough question, and it depends on the antivirus, its architecture, and other things. Um, like many things, it's very difficult to compare to. You know where this
0: conversation is headed, right? I mean, sure, I do, they, I yeah.
1: do, and I think ultimately, um, I think antivirus industry has its place; it has its value. But at the same time, uh, I think the the pressure to increase the protections that it offers, not just from a detection standpoint, but in its actual engineering, is a healthy conversation and going in the right direction
0: would you call on all AV, third-party AV vendors to make sure they're in a sandbox?
1: I don't think, so. I think you have to be careful with sandbox because it can be a square peg round hole. Mm-hmm. There can be a tax So,
0: so when, when when you mentioned you would, you want them to do additional things, specifically, can you get into it
1: quickly? Sure, I would say things like, you know, making sure that your the a range of parsers is adequately tested, making sure that you have the right third-party programs to incentivize people providing bugs to you, um, looking at having the latest mitigations enabled, making sure that you're disabling attack surface that isn't required, um, avoiding using kernel drivers where that is not the right place from a design standpoint. It's very hard, and and uh, I get this all the time towards Microsoft. So it's very easy as an outsider to say you should do this, this, and that, and, and think you know all the variables. So I would never be uh, the, take that level of arrogance. But I would say in the general case. It is healthy and important for all of the vendors, antivirus or, or not, to constantly look at how to improve things and what they can take advantage of. and uh, And I think it's a healthy conversation.
0: I think that's very, very fair. Uh, and just to wrap up, what do you, what do you, what is, what are you guys working on now? Where are you next? Where can people find you? Are you hiring? This is where you get the plug.
1: Yeah. So um, you know. My team is constantly hiring. So if you're interested in doing offensive security research at Microsoft and really touching a billion of the most critical devices out there, you know, talk to me, I'm easy to find. My DMS are open uh, and I encourage people to discuss Um, what we're working on is I would say a a strategy to really get to what I would call device or appliance level security um, while still allowing the productivity that windows is famous for. We'll be at Black Hat. A couple folks from OSR will be talk, talking about things like uh, offensive security research and the hypervisors, and I'll be talking about Zero Trust at Black Hat this year. So come out, chat to me, um, and yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much, Ryan, for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Come back on, because I noticed your team uh, also just released a kind of a Zero Trust migration document that I plan to get into. I have it on my notes here, but we ran yeah. out of time. Um, that's a whole, but but that I think deserves a whole uh, new separate yeah, conversation
1: a fun conversation I'd love to chat to you about what I found doing this research
0: I'll find you in Vegas I'll buy you a beer and maybe we can do it again
1: yeah that'd be awesome
0: thank you very much David best hey, of luck with everything so it's
1: been really fun